For all of you who are stuck out here with me, it's going to be Psalm chapter 25, verse 3. Psalm 25, just verse 3. I uh, may look at this a couple of times over the next couple of weeks. I'm still praying over how much through Psalm 25. They're just, it, it's so hard to, you know, to just to be honest with you, to, to choose. And so I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be dismissive of, of a single verse. And so, but we'll, we'll look at Psalm 25, verse 3 from Psalm 25 tonight. Um, if you want to find that, um, David writes, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Uh, let's pray together again and then we'll, then we will we'll study. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that I am, I'm going to do it the, the way you prepared me to do it today, Father God. I pray, God, that, that my heart is ready for this, Father. And I pray also, Lord, that I have not neglected your word today. I pray, God, that in prayer and in study, Father God, that my heart is full. And I pray, God, that I am uh, that I am as certain as a man can be, Father God, that, the, feet, that the, the path that my feet are on right now in preaching is the one that you want me on, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I come and I preach, God, without any arrogance, without any, God, any, um, um, any pointing back at myself, Father God. But I pray, God, that I come here, Lord, to point only to the cross, to point toward Christ, to lift up the name of Jesus, Father God, in every verse. And I pray that I don't do it by preaching above the scripture, Father God, but I do this, God, by preaching through the scripture. That's what I pray for today. What I've been praying for, Father, I pray, God, that I have not abandoned your word, Father, but I pray, God, always in this pulpit, your word is exalted. Bless us today, Father God, as we look at your word. Feed us, God, through it. Bless us, God, to receive what we need. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Um, just begin with, with actually another verse. The prophet Habakkuk. It says in Habakkuk 1 3, it says, You who are pure, who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot, cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at, at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, Habakkuk is, is certainly a minor prophet, but whenever you're, the words that God has given you are included in, in, the, in the canon of Holy Scripture, and no man save the ones who've written these 66 books can be one to claim this. So it makes Habakkuk in a very small minority of all the men who've ever cried out to the name of our Lord. But yet, knowing that he's trusted to write Scripture, that literally words that he penned are now part of God's holy canon, knowing that to be true, it is still amazing to me that this biblical author, who was trusted with that precious truth to be preserved in the canon of Scripture, has a serious accusation against the Lord our God. But now what's better than that is the fact that this is not the only time this accusation is leveled against God and that God chooses to preserve so many of them. I guess the first distinction or distinctive maybe about our God is the fact that He's just not like us at all. Men, people like us, are, we're just too fragile and we're too insecure to allow that kind of criticism. But God seems to preserve His own criticism over and over again. He makes sure that we know when we are criticized that we were not the only ones. That the perfect, infinite, everlasting God has had to face up to criticism. So when I'm criticized and I'm so incomplete and so imperfect, I really can't get bent out of shape about it. Because God was criticized. Here Habakkuk just says, and of course the, the Bible gives the answer to Habakkuk's question. 
How come the perfect God can look at such wicked, imperfect people and see what they're going to do? How come He just doesn't act? How come God doesn't prevent every crime before it happens? How come God doesn't step in and make sure that, that men or women who are going to act in such an unrighteous fashion aren't dealt with before their unrighteousness hurts someone? Why doesn't He do that? Now look... Understanding first that this is the God who defines himself in the words of Moses in Luke 19, 2 as speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, of course, that's a that's an unbelievable statement, Not unbelievable. It's absolutely believable in, in terms of the scripture. But what makes it so powerful is the fact that I think it carries both two meanings. As when God says things like this, it carries two meanings. God is holy. He is perfect beyond our comprehension. Infinitely holy in every aspect of His action or His character. There is no weakness in God. He is infinitely perfect always. At the same time, He is holy. It's like saying God is love. God is loving, there's no doubt about that, but God is the very definition of love. The standard for love that no man can reach and that every man or every woman aspires to is the standard of the living God. His love is as infinite as He is infinite. At the same time, His holiness is as He is the definition of holiness. If I want to know what it looks like to be holy, I look to God. I can't look to man because no man is holy. Only God, i.e., only the God-man was holy. All other men are unholy. All other men are wicked sinners by definition. None of us meets the standards of God. Only God Himself. Only God in the flesh met the standards for holiness. But if He is holy, why is it that He is tolerant of evil when it appears in the world? Now, I would say this. We know where this heads. But I want to I I kind of head that off where we know it's going before we go any farther. It's incredibly easy for me to tell when people are being unholy toward me. Right? I, I'm good at being offended. I'm real good at it. I'm fantastic at it. But the only thing in life I'm good at is knowing when somebody's trying to stick it to me. Right? And let's just be honest. We're all the same here. I never see my own sins very clearly. I never see it when I'm doing it. I never see when I'm doing a bad job. I only see when you're doing a bad job. I never see when I'm being unloving. I only see when you're being unloving. I never see those weaknesses in myself because I'm a stuck-on-myself human being like so many other mo of the same model. I, I can't see my own weaknesses. I can't at all. And so when I start talking about whether or not people really receive justice when they're being wicked, I need to remember that I am one of those wicked people. And for me to receive justice meant either before the blood to be thrown into a sinner's hell or after the application of the blood to be bitterly chastised by God who always measures up to that, right? Who will chastise those he loves. Understand that chastisement is never a pleasant experience. It's always a loving experience. So the fact that God withholds his infinite justice from anyone, I have to remember that, that anyone includes me. That God has withheld his infinite justice from all of us. When I was a lost sinner, I had cursed God enough to be forever condemned. Forever condemned. The fact that he withheld justice 
means that there's something loving and tender and also infinitely perfect in the fact that God just doesn't just immediately mete out justice as he is able to. Why would the, God, the holy God indulge the evil of men and women, the worst of crimes against heaven and all decency? The response of the God of creation to intrinsic human sin is explained better than I can ever explain it by Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9, where his love for the world, the love of God for the world, is manifested as patience. God loves the world so much that he's patient with it. God loves the world so much that he knows that it's constantly sinning both against him and against itself, right? Because I didn't just sin against God in my rebellion. I sinned against my parents or in my rebellion. I sinned against my family or in my rebellion. I sinned against my friends. I sinned against my enemies. You did the same. God sees the level, the depth, the destructive nature of our sin and his response is not to deal with it as human beings would deal with it once again because we are impatient. Once again, I want justice. I want mercy for me. I want justice for you. I want God to be merciful toward my sins whenever they are made apparent because it takes a lot for me to see them. But I want justice immediately for you as if I'm the most offended. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, most, I'm the most victimized of all the victims. Knowing these things are simply not true. But now, with patience, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So therefore, what God tells us very clearly is this. He understands exactly how the world is, but His goal is different than ours. My goal is defense for Tony. My goal is getting back. My goal is not even justice. Let's just be honest. My goal, secretly, I know it's not right, but we're like this. In our hearts, our collective goal is retribution. We want people to get what they deserve. I was, I was telling the kids one time, I think it's one of the strangest things in the world, is that the older I get, the more when I watch a movie and somebody really gets what they deserve, the less I identify with the one who gets what they deserve. And the more I really cheer when people get just what they're asking for. The bad guy gets blown up, I'm happy. I'm happy. Why? Because I'm all about retribution. I, want, I don't want somebody to deserve, get what they deserve. I want them to get what I think they deserve. What I've meted out. My punishment. In my very finite, very perverse, very arrogant wisdom. I want people to get what I think they deserve. God wants repentance. God looks at the lost sinner. He looks at the great offender. He looks at the murderer or the rapist, the killer. He looks at that person. You know what he wants them to have? He wants them to enjoy the infinite pleasures of repentance because he realizes we are all them. Now, now I'm paraphrasing so severely the, the Holy Scriptures and their teaching on this idea, but the very simple truth is, is almost stated logically, and that is, is that every crime requires motive and opportunity. And you and I collectively, we have got all the motive in the world. The things we didn't do, we didn't do because we didn't have opportunity. We didn't take a life because we were angry enough to do it, but they weren't right there. We didn't, we didn't sin grievously against our flesh, even though we were tempted enough to do it. We just didn't have the opportunity to do it right then. That we're as wicked as the killer in the heart of man. 
because the scripture very clearly tells us that all the thoughts and intentions of our heart are violence all day long. I think what God wanted for us, He wants for them. What God wants for you and I in the pews, He wants for death row. He wants for solitary confinement. He wants for maximum security. He wants them to know the joys of infinite repentance. Because Christ died for those sins also. The aim of the Lord for each of us is to see our potential for, for, for repentance become reality. And not to merely condemn guilty men and women because our actions are without moral or intellectual justification. Just because my actions deserve hell, God does not automatically give me that. Just because my actions deserve ultimate condemnation, God does not immediately reward my actions with that condemnation. Christ died so that we can repent of our sins and so that the Lord could rightly and ethically forgive all of our sins and all of our misdeeds. Jesus died on Calvary so that we can not only repent but be forgiven. But be forgiven. That both the heart of man could be made right so it would repent of its sins rightly in true godly grief. In actual, truly motivated by the Holy Spirit, grief over our sin. But at the same time, the penalty for that sin was paid on Calvary forever. Christ died to pay it all for everybody. So whatever I've done, Jesus paid for. Whatever I'm guilty of, God has atoned for. He hung and He died for our sins. It is the gospel. The mercy that's intertwined in the gospel message is the slack that the devious and the destructive will exploit to bring suffering to the world. There is some slack hardwired into it. And I'll tell you why. And it's because this is what Solomon writes when he just talks about justice in Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because of this, because people don't sin and drop dead, they continue to sin. Now, it's not other people. Folks, it was me and it was you. By the time I was 15 or 16 years old, I had such a grievous litany of sins. There was no excuse but to cast me headlong in hell. What brought me to the cross was the knowledge that if I died, I would absolutely, by the just, go to hell. And I deserve every second of it. If they're at 15 or 16, what were they at 32? What are they? The longer we live, the more condemned we are. And the reason we continue to sin is because we don't just drop dead. We just fall over. We sin because we are sinners. And we've been given opportunity. And all a criminal needs is opportunity, right? The chance to be a criminal. And it comes out. It comes out. Look, as a nation, we live in a world with the death penalty ensconced in the legal codes of many states, the military, and the federal government. Now, this is not, a, this is not me making a kind of political point about the death penalty. I'm just using it as an example. Okay, So wh whichever side you're on in it, you're fine. I'm not, I'm not condemning one or the other. I'm saying this. However, any talk of execution as a deterrent against crime is logically shortcutted, or short-circuited by the decades in which it takes to bring the fatal sen sentence to fruition. 
So literally, we can talk about the death penalty deterring crime, just logically speaking, in terms of numbers. It doesn't really work because it runs up against Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because it takes 20 years or 30 years to happen, it's no deterrent at all. By the time the convicted murderer dies for his or her sins, the public's forgotten the crime, the outrage it produced, and its value for deterring the mind or heart of someone similarly inclined is just worthless. The fact of the matter is, the death penalty really does nothing because it takes so long, it takes so long, that it's really stopped being big news, hasn't it? Someone takes someone's life and 20 years later they die for it, and it's on page six. It's not on the first page. It's not on page one of a newspaper. It's not the lead story very many places. Because punishment is only a deterrent to crime if it happens speedily. And it just simply, by our, by our standards, simply does not. By God's standard, does not. So therefore, it does not, does not deter. But look, as a prax, practical matter, William Gladstone's maxim, justice delayed is, just, is, uh, justice delayed is denied, is un, incontrovertibly true. If you have to wait your entire life for justice, you're really not receiving justice. If it happens when you're 20 and you receive justice at 90, you really have not received justice. In fact, what you've received is the opposite, injustice. However, the necessary application to the civil law of men and nations, the application to soteriology, is the most vital for us. It's okay that nations do justice badly. It's alright, we'll make it. Because one of these days, Christ comes and absolute justice comes. Perfect justice. We, we should never rely on man for justice because man, simply put, cannot provide justice for you and I. Occasionally, occasionally, we will go to law, go to the law, and we will receive uh, something that satisfies our heart. Only occasionally. Only occasionally. More often than not, the law simply provides more frustration and not less, right? More trouble and not less. It would be wonderfully worked out that way, but we live on a cursed earth. We live on an earth in which justice is, per, is as perverted as everything else. As we pointed out so, so many times, I've used this as an example. Uh, we, have, we have sweet and wonderful baby, many in our, in our congregation, sweet, beautiful babies. And we know what they look like. They've got ten fingers and ten toes and two eyes and a nose and a mouth and rosy cheeks and all that kind of stuff. And every single day, many, many times on this earth, the baby's born that doesn't look anything like that at all. At all that isn't healthy and rosy and perfect. That's to be honest with you, every single day on this earth, the baby's born that's, that, that's not long for this earth. And if the curse is so terrible that it can literally mar the human form in that way, how can we expect justice on an earth that's that cursed? We can't. We can't. All we can do is approximate. All we can do is try to have a just society and be just people. But the fact of the matter is, even our institutions will always betray us always betray us. There's no hope in that. The hope, of course, is in Christ and in His return. We are glad that soteriology, that soteriology is, where, is where God's attitude toward justice flowers the most. Paul in Romans 2.4 reminds the world that the kindness and patience of God is the opportunity for men and women to turn from sin. He writes, Or do you presume on the riches of this kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So all those times I got away with it, it was really 
the opportunity that God was giving my heart to repent of my sins and turn from my wicked ways. That God has given mercy and patience in place of, of infinite, true, and perfect justice because He loves us even when we don't love ourselves. When we hate ourselves, when we pour our lives into sin, God still loves us. Absolutely. And so He gives us patience instead of justice as a way for the world because we needed it too. God delays judgment that's rightful, it's just and needed because He's the Lord of infinite priorities over meaningless moral victories. A single sentence of death relieves not suffering, answers no eternal questions, excuse me, eternal questions, and fixes nothing lacking in the human heart of the broken or the broken nation. Revival, real, heart-changing, radically invasive, salvation and spiritual awakening changes lives and human enterprises forever. So the real answer to our quest for justice ought to be a quest for revival, for nationwide revival, because nationwide revival will bring more peace to you and I than all the justice in the world ever could, because it's always going to be broken. Revival will always be given by God and managed by God. When, when people come to know Christ, abortion clinics close. When people come to know Christ, prisons are not as needed. Do you understand? There's, there's the hope for a nation. Hope for a nation isn't in more or better laws. Hope for a nation is in, is, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, in both our perseverance and our declaration of the gospel, the object's the same. Tolerating the intolerable. Allowing for suffering in, in a life of ambition and coping through with the disappointments of our world calls us to the patience that we are not fond of or nor, nor are we good at. So all of this dysfunction, dysfunction in the world, all it does is point me to the fact that I've got to have patience with God. I've got to lean on God for everything in a way that I'm not comfortable doing. I want to handle my own business. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't just mean working hard. I don't just mean uh, managing my finances in a Christian way. What I mean is this, is that when insulted, I want to get back. I want to defend myself. I want to show I'm the bigger man, even if I'm always the smaller man. I want to do that because that's what this fleshly heart just demands. But now the gospel demands that I trust God with everything, especially those things, especially those things. We need for the Word and the Spirit to guide us to a fixed point. A goal in the distance, a shining light that will assuage our doubts and strengthen our resolve. As we pause in the midst of this, and we talk about that idea of wait. Just simply put, what, what Psalm 25 verse 3 said, just wait on God. Don't be treacherous. Don't, don't betray Him. Don't try to find your own way. Don't scheme. Don't do any of those things. Just wait on God. We talk about waiting on God. I so desperately right now want to take David's words in Psalm 25 and superimpose upon them the real theme of it and say, if you're going to wait on somebody, you've got to wait on the face of Jesus. You've got to wait on the name of Jesus. Because there's where our hope is. The only way to read this verse in Psalm 25 is to connect the idea of waiting with the proper thing to wait on. The proper person. A broken and destroyed people. Shamed and harmed by our sins and the mistakes of others. We need the face of our beloved Savior to draw us. In those times, we are looking for the face of Christ. Every day. In every moment. 
the times when we feel the most outcast, the most attacked, the most under pressure, we look to Christ. The writer says in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 2, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Therefore, we, got, we have to do just that. Sinners look to Jesus because He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Be thrilled and overwhelmed that God came down and died for your sins. He endured. And He despised the challenges of the penalty of death on your account so that no man or woman need, need helplessly die in their sins. He died so that you can be saved. Jesus died to save your life eternally. And he did this just for joy. It was the only motivating factor he needed. Jesus died for our sins because it made him feel good. That's joy. For joy. Believers in need of serious artillery to defend yourself from the hordes of maniacal haters that attack you daily. I'm sure somebody in this room has felt just like that. Like if you find one more critic, you, you don't know what you're going to do. If one more person tells you you're terrible, you just don't know what you're going to do. Then verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As much as we suffer, Jesus agonized infinitely more for our sins. Folks, it wasn't just the cross. It was a life of suffering. A life of bearing our burdens needlessly. He bore them for us. Look to the one who saved you for the strength to trust him with your sins. With your failures, with your weaknesses, with your fears, with your waves of anger, with your frustrations, with your disappointments, with every dirty and decimated instance in a life that ends in victorious death. Trust Him with that, with all of it. With all of it. His shoulders are infinitely broad. He can take the burden. Take it. Wait on Him. Trust Him. David makes it clear that human morality, especially principled action, matters a great deal to the living God as he writes in the focal passage. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. What's God speaking of when he leads David to write about waiting on him? Well, think about Isaiah's words. They're, they're, they're really thematically a lot like what David has to say. In Isaiah 40, verse 30, even you shall faint and be weary, and even young men shall fall exhausted. Right. Everyone gets tired sometimes, don't we? Now, look, all of us in this room understand what it's like to be physically tired, right? Tired. Exhaustion, however, it's not just a physical ailment, is it? Sometimes you've got plenty of sleep and you're still exhausted. Sometimes you don't, you don't really have a physically demanding life, but you are exhausted nonetheless, right? There are different kinds of exhaustion. And I believe that the application of this scripture uh, applies to all of them. It's not just a physical ailment, but it's a spiritual condition as well. We get tired of things. You get tired of things? You get tired of people? You get tired of conditions you're in or, or the, the, the stress that you have, stressors? You get tired of having demands put on you or criticism or attacks? Or even get tired of others' opinions? 
There's a lot of things we get tired of. You know, we say we're tired of it, and what, sometimes what we really mean is we just don't want to hear it anymore, but we'll be okay tomorrow. And sometimes we feel like we're just an inch shorter. You know what I mean by that? Now, some of y'all can take it. I really can't take it. I don't have an inch to spare. I need every bit that God gave me, because if I don't, I will literally really be stumpy then. But it's, it's really hard when you feel like you're being driven like a nail by the pressure. I said one more person criticizes you and you just don't know what you'll do. You might crack. You ever been there? Because if one more person does it, I'm going crazy in here. Everybody's been like that, right? Because those things weary us. They exhaust us in an emotional and a spiritual way. And while we know what to do for the physical, right? Go to bed. Go to bed. If you're not getting enough sleep, get some sleep. Get some rest. Take a day off. These are ways to deal with those things. It's hard to deal with the emotional and the spiritual ones, isn't it? Very hard to deal with them. After all, excuse me, um, when we are challenged in other ways, the temptation is to do it on our own. See, that's the problem with those other exhaustions, those other, those, that other form of tiredness, is that oftentimes we get really tempted in our flesh to deal with it. To deal with it. We want to lash out, to strike back, to deal with issues that only can be handled completely, rationally, mercifully, and godly through his will, through his leadership, and through his action. We can get caught up in storms of criticism or storms of attack or doubt or, or, or interpersonal problems with people. And what we don't know, what we never know, is just what God's doing with that. Because we always think it's about us, right? They're criticizing us. The problem here is they're being mean to me. I don't know what God's doing with them. It may be an opportunity. There may be patience coming. I may not be guilty. You may not be guilty. You may not have done anything. But God's being very patient with them because he's leading them to repentance. And your suffering, your suffering through this can be instrumental in their salvation. Because God's being patient in just this time. After all, the sinfulness of another can be the opportunity for mercy and compassion from God through the gospel. Men and women can find the Lord by attacking us. I think it's when I realized that as I was going to write it today, I said to myself, oh my goodness, do you mean that I got every conflict in my life wrong? Yes, I got every conflict in my life wrong. Everyone, without exception. i got to learn to be so much more patient than I am. Job's patience, Job's patience and beyond is, is our goal. Because I don't know what God's doing. And, and the world's not about me. It's always about Christ. The gospel's always about Jesus. It's never about, a little bit about Tony. It's never a little bit about you. That God can be using the fact that somebody's absolutely being cruel to you right now to bring, to make them a sister or a brother and not an enemy. Not an enemy. If the family of Jim Elliot can embrace the murderer of their father and husband, and that father husband can adopt the son of Jim Elliot and treat him as his own son, what can he do in our little world? What, there was no obstacle he did not overcome in drawing a man to Christ, and he used the blood of a martyr to do it. 
and I'm crying about stuff and I'm so worried. When God is therefore slow to anger and patiently desiring, it is because his design is always for men and women to learn repentance. For this reason, Isaiah answers the conditions of verse 30 with a promise of verse 31 that says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The command in Psalm 25 is to not respond to challenge with the wicked treachery that denotes our rebellion from the will and the care of Christ. We give up the promise of Psalm 31 when we decide we've got to take care of it ourselves. When I grow weary over whatever it is, when I turn to my own methods to cope with that or deal with that or make it go away, when I practice that treachery, what I do is undercut what God's trying to do, not just in others, but in me. Because that right there is about us. You, you will renew your strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not be weary. You'll walk and not faint. That's a promise for us if we patiently wait on the Lord. We let the Lord deal with things and not deal with it ourselves. Challenged by the Lord in this verse and others, we are called to rely on the God of the cross and the throne. Jesus, the friend of sinners, who will renew our strength when our hope is in Him and not in ourselves. Mounted up, running fast, walking in strength, Christ leads His people through terrible times to a glorious future in which our suffering really matters because every minute of the, of the, of the life of the Christian is blood-bought and gospel beneficial. Folks, in terms of ministry, in terms of missions and evangelism, we are resources. Every single second purchased by God. Your worst day bought by the blood of Christ and used for the purpose of the gospel. I can't tell you how many worst days I've wasted. Can't many, many times I never had the vision. I never saw beyond my own suffering and my own heart and my own problems to realize that God's plan was so much bigger than me. That it included me, but it was so much bigger. And he just needed me to be patient and do what he wanted me to do. That's all he needed me to do. We are not just the preachers and the hearers. We are the sermon that our Lord preaches beginning in this pulpit and ending when men and women are called to repentance. All this happens when we agree with David in Psalm chapter 25, verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. As God's people, we'll have integrity, resistance to stress that allows us to be the same person no matter the circumstances. See, there's, once again, I've always had, I think most of us do, have an integrity problem. We like to believe we're the same person under fire and not, but the reality is the right thing, the wrong thing happens. I said the right, I really mean the wrong thing happens. And we can, we can forget a lot of, of things that we ought not forget, right? In an instant, we can be a different person that we're ashamed of, right? That we don't want that person coming out. See, that's a lack of Christian integrity, and I've got it. I'll tell you I do. Lack of Christian integrity. It's what it's what waiting produces. It means I'm I'm getting to be stress proof. Burning coals are heaped on me, and I still praise God. And uprightness, the ability to seek God's will above our own. I think that's the 
of uh, much as important as integrity is, this idea of being of being keyed into the will of God and wanting the will of God in my own will. I've said that. I've modeled Christ's prayer about that. But in my life, how many times can I honestly say I really wanted God's will and not mine? I really wanted God's will to be done. We say it. We say it like a slogan, don't we? But do we really mean it? Do I really want God's will? But what if God's will means I've got to suffer some more? What if God's will means he's going to use my suffering to save someone else? And I'm not even ever going to know. I'm not going to have this great, you know, this great uh, moment when I know why the suffering was. I'll find out in glory. Am I going to be patient and never know? Because that's the ability to, that's upright, the ability to seek God's will above my own every time. This is going to preserve us as a people. This is going to preserve us as a people. How do, we, how do we find this? We practice tonight waiting on the Lord in every circumstance. Let's pray together.